1: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary, BTW, void word prohibited by law. See
0: terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: Hello, I'm Scott Sashek. And I'm Evan Novi Williams, and this is the Music City Millions sports business podcast, The Sportercast.
0: I like that. Like Music City Bowl. I know we're talking Nashville, but I don't know exactly where we're going. Or is it Smashville when we're talking about the hockey team? Smashville or, Smashville, or Music Smashville, City?
1: Scott. Very good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We're going a little Smashville. A little Roman Yossi. Right? He's still there, right? He is. He is. Where's Pecorino? He's still there?
1: Still there also.
0: Yeah. All right. I think I've exhausted my... Wait, what's his name? Um, <laughs>
1: Ryan Johansson?
0: No, Phillip I wouldn't Forsberg? have gone with him. Forsberg, okay. Yeah. Uh, what, what's her name? The singer who does Monday Night Football opening theme. Carrie uh, Underwood. Uh, Carrie does her Underwood. husband play yeah. for the
1: Predators? I do not know who her husband is, so maybe.
0: Should, should I get my wife in on this podcast
1: for the first time? <laughs> Kimberly. Ask, I'm curious.
0: Kimberly. What's the husband's name? Do you know? Uh, she says, yes, he plays for the Predators. See, if, Great, I, I, if I need that. my People magazine, I go to my wife. She's standing right there. Anyway, story we broke uh, on Sportico last week. Nashville Predators being sold, Uh, not only the fact that they were there for sale. You and I had sort of a double dip. It was like, all right, we got the tip there for sale. We couldn't find out who the buyer was. We convert the sale. Then we're like, oh man, now we got to find the buyer. We got the tip, convert the buyer. And when you add it all up, it's one heck of a really interesting sports business story. And I'll let you take it where you want to go first, probably ID the buyer, um, but then take it anywhere you want to go because there's so many Uh, interesting facets to the story
1: so the buyer is former tennessee governor bill haslam if that last name sounds familiar to you yes he's the brother of jimmy haslam who owns the columbus crew and owns the cleveland browns i like that Uh, you started
0: with the columbus crew first (laughs) jimmy haslam owns the columbus crew yes he does
1: make sure we get them both in there um and hold on hold on hold
0: on we got my wife bringing the phone over okay Mike Fisher, former professional ice hockey player. Gotcha. Okay. Senators and Nashville Predators. He retired in 17 with the Preds. Okay. Right. Oh, wait, returned in 18, signing a one year contract. So, Mike Fisher, Predators. Former carry Predators. Great. Suspect. There we yeah. go. <laughs> Thank you, Kimberly.
1: So, so, Bill Haslam, Scott, former governor of Tennessee, he is going to be the next controlling owner of the Nashville Predators. It's not going to happen immediately. The way we understand this deal, he's buying into a minority stake immediately, probably going to be announced in in the coming weeks or, or maybe a month or so. And then over time, much like we talked about with David Blitzer and the Cleveland Guardians, over time, he will have the ability to buy into the controlling stake. So minority at the start and then controlling.
0: Have we gotten down to the real reason why this goes on? Is it just like sort of controlling owners not wanting to let go of control? Easier over time? Is there some sort of tax issue as to why perhaps over time do we need to look into this and order up a story from Brendan Coffey?
1: I, it's interesting, and I wonder if it could be as simple as the the guys who own the men and women who own the Predators right now, or just don't want to let it go that quickly, and 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 they want a, a couple years swan song. You could certainly maybe make an argument that that Bill wants to get a sense of what it's like to own this franchise and what the data to day requirements are going to be before all of it starts to fall on his shoulders i could think of a few possibilities there scott and i don't know the obvious answer here but but yes it does seem like this is going to be happening in waves and we can discuss kind of the basics of 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 the predators business it's not a huge market but it was an expansion team that has done a really good job both on the ice scott and building a loyal following yeah their attendance is great one of seven teams that sold out averaged a sellout across its 41 home games last year. Uh, they also operate, they don't own the building, but the but the team operates the building, which means that they get a piece of the economics of all the concerts and all of the touring shows that play at Bridgestone Arena. It's the sixth highest grossing arena in the country, Scott. That kind of shocked me. But just to give you a sense of so the team, not only are they selling out all of their hockey games, they have a really, really lucrative arena that they get to operate and share in the economics of those shows. So now I'm wondering, it's interesting why would
0: business. that surprise you? You just said music City, right? So anybody <laughs> who wants to play Nashville is going to be playing Bridgestone Arena. Plus, you've got an anchor tenant in a, in a four-major sport. Why would it surprise you that that would be because it's not New York or L.A. or there's multiple yeah, arenas in, in my, those markets? In my
1: mind, like the, the highest grossing arenas probably track with the most populous cities in the country, right? There's some in L.A., there's some in New York. I would bet that Houston and Dallas would probably be up there as well. And the more you think about it, Scott, you're right. It makes sense. This is a potentially the music capital or live show capital of, of the U.S., certainly east of the Mississippi. And there's a reason why that that, that, that building does really well. But but yes, in my mind, that's the garden. It's the Staples Center. It's, it's It's the ones in the huge metropolitan hubs in the U.S. just because of the amount of people that live nearby.
0: Just busting your chops because I can, because if you asked me to name the top 10 arenas, I probably would not have gotten. First of all, I would have said, hey, what's that arena in Nashville called these days? I probably would have forgotten, even though I've watched the Predators, you know, every now and then as a hockey fan. But I wouldn't have remembered Bridgestone. But yeah, I probably wouldn't have put them in my top five. Or six so either, I've pulled although it list, does make I pulled up the I pulled
1: up the list here, and this is right, to be clear. And this, this is, is according is, to who? This is Polestar? according to Polestar at the year okay. end 2019. So right before the pandemic hit. Number one in the U.S. is Madison Square Garden. It's number one in the world. And then you go down. It's interesting. Detroit Little Caesars Arena is number two. The Forum in Inglewood number three. Number four is the Barclays Center in Brooklyn. Uh number 5 is Wells Fargo in Pennsylvania in Philadelphia and then number 6 is Nashville Bridgestone Arena. So kind of tracks with the with the highest uh, Detroit is kind where's, of a surprise where, where, there to where's me as crypto. well. But, dot
0: .com even though you said Staples. Where's crypto.com So arena? it
1: is yes. So back when it was called Staples that is uh number 7 in the US, 15 globally right. right after Nashville. Now do
0: we think so what does that tell me if I what am I to draw from that that those statistics right there that the economics of concerts are perhaps better than the economics of having the multiple anchor tenants in two different sports.
1: Well, so th- these numbers don't include sports teams. This is for touring shows and oh, so just for
0: the touring shows. Okay. Okay.
1: Which makes Madison square garden in some ways, even more impressive more that they're impressive. here considering that they have two anchor There's tenants, So many
0: dates that and, are taken up. Right.
1: And so does Detroit, I believe, right. Both the red wings and the Pistons are playing there. Um, but, but yes, it's a really interesting little, uh, little mix of, uh, uh of arenas here. And I was wrong. Both, both, both Dallas and Houston are, are way further down the list than, than Philadelphia and, nashville
0: all right i'm being told by the way by multiple sources that the valuation on these teams is is critically important these days to one gary bettman the commissioner mm. of the nhl like he wants some good eye-popping numbers and what did we have as the you know our kurt battenhausen what did he have as the valuation on the preds and what are you hearing on the price of the deal
1: We had the Preds at 680 million, I believe it was 21st or so, something in the 20s in terms of rank across the NHL. I heard that the the valuation on this deal is a little bit higher, something in kind of the mid 700s. That, that's probably a factor, Scott, also of the fact that that this is a valuation that's being priced on a on a on a controlling stake that might be purchased in two or three years, in which case you have to assume, I think, that the team is going to be worth a bit more uh, than it is right now in, in in a couple of years. At least that's what Gary Bettman and I think anyone associated with the NHL would believe. So, so yes, I think we had them at six eighty. And, and from what I understand, the price here on the deal is a little bit higher than that, but not but not a, not not incredibly higher.
0: And take a look at the cap table there. I know when we were sort of going, if you had said to me, who's the controlling owner of the Nashville Predators prior to this story? I have no idea, right? We get, this is one of those where you have to go look it up and, uh, and figure out. But then you see a whole cap table. It reminds me of the old Boston Celtics when Danny Ainge told me, I don't think I can name all of them or recognize all the owners, right? That's when they had to start tightening restrictions about who gets to hang out in the locker room and say they own the team. You know, if it's not Grossbeck or Pallyuca, you know, there are a whole lot of people taking liberties saying, I own the Boston Celtics, you know, one of these one, two percent folks. But it's almost the same thing with the Preds.
1: According to the website, there's at least 17 uh, owners <laughs> right now. And the controlling owner is is Herb Fritsch. In some of the conversations here Scott actually made me think of uh, the the other NHL team that sold in the past year or so which is the Pittsburgh Penguins that ownership group Ron Burkle and Mario Lemieux also had a lot of LPS they were widely considered within Pittsburgh as as the reason why the team was still in Pittsburgh that at a at a hard financial time they came in and kept the team there and obviously had a lot of success afterwards that seems to be the impression I get about this group in Nashville as well I think they bought the team in 2007 but the general feeling in the city is that the This was an expansion team in 1998. Things were going fine, but it looked like the team may move and that this group kind of stepped in and they were the financial savior that kept the team in Nashville. Obviously, just like the Penguins, maybe not as much from a ring standpoint, but they've had a lot of success in Nashville in the last few years. And it seems as though, at least right now, the team is, is the owners are ready to move on. One thing, Scott, that I did think was interesting here is that I, we didn't hear about this until very late in the process. They essentially had a deal done before we heard about it. From what I understand, there, there were no bankers used in this transaction at all. There were very small law firms that were used in the transaction. They did not have an open RFP process. It's not like well, that, the, that's the, why. the, the they predators didn't open opened process. this up to everybody. They had a guy who was interested. They decided to talk. They, they, they hammered out a price and a deal that both sides were interested in. It's interesting to me that, that sometimes, like the Broncos, we know everything about it every step of the way. It's a very public process. And then other times, like the Predators, you can get to the point where, where people are ready to put, put ink onto paper before anyone publicly finds out about it.
0: Well, you know, a lot of times in these processes, you, you hear, well, you got to find the right buyer, right? Who's the suitable owner? And you heard that in Chelsea too, which was the most public of processes. It had not yeah. only the money, but it had to be the right steward of the franchise. <laughs> And if I'm a Predators fan, let's see, what would I be looking for? Let, like In order, what am I looking for? I'm looking for a well-capitalized owner. So we have a net worth in excess of $2 billion here with Bill Hassan. Check. I'm looking for somebody with ties to the community. And you don't have to worry about your franchise hitting the Mayflower truck. Do you get that reference? When I, say I, do, I do know the reference. All right. yeah. So you don't, you don't want the Mayflower trucks pulling up in the snow in the dead of night. So that's check. I mean, he's the former governor of the state. You know, he's got lots of ties there. Great. And maybe somebody with a little uh, know-how. Or if not from your, by yourself, maybe you could pick up the phone and call, you know, Brother Jimmy and say, hey, uh, what do you think here? Uh, I, I'm looking to buy a team. And uh, what do you think? And how should I proceed? What, what, what are some of the mistakes you made? So check, check, check get it done quietly, reach the finish line, fair deal for everybody. And I'm sure the other owners have got to be thrilled if the Nashville Predators now have a valuation of three quarters of a billion dollars.
1: I think that's right, Scott. The two things that I saw, I think the most on Twitter when we broke this story was people who were concerned that the team was moving to Cleveland just because yeah. of the Haslam connection. That is, as you said, uh, is, is not happening. The, the, the former governor of Tennessee does not buy the state's only uh, hockey team and move it uh, to, to, to a different state. Um, and then secondly, a lot of people saying, wow, I didn't know politics was this lucrative. That The former governor of Tennessee is worth 2.3 or 2.4 billion dollars. Obviously, he got his money much in, the same, J, way, baby. in the same way that, that that Jimmy did. So not directly from politics, but from, from the family business, which he and Jimmy essentially co-ran. Jimmy as CEO and, and, and Bill as president for a lot of the 90s before Bill got into politics. So- All right.
0: There was one other thing, though, Eben, that did get a lot of attention besides the fact that perhaps politics, you know, did pay well, and do, do you know where I'm going? What else got a lot I don't of I don't know Twitter? where you're going here. You really don't know where I'm going. No. What else got a lot of attention on Twitter when we broke this story?
1: Uh, oh, the, the cost of our subscriptions? Yeah, the cost of our subscriptions at Sportico. <laughs> yeah, that's right. If, if you, yeah. <laughs> you
0: want to know what's... I'm sorry, you know, we're primarily a B2B thing here, but we'd love to have all the fans and sign up. If you want to know what's going on in sports business, if you want to know it before anybody else, what's my new made-up tagline? It's not an official, but maybe I'll trademark it. We tell you tell things you, things don't, you know. don't know. Yeah. yeah, and that means... And we're talking about current owners and executives and fans. And If you want to know stuff and read about why things matter and get it backed up by some data and look at some really great data viz and get some unbelievable guest op-eds, then you know what? We're worth it, damn it. So stop complaining. That's Agreed. Important. But the All sportcast right. is free. And the sportcast is free. <laughs> <laughs> Download wherever you get your podcasts. All right. MLS and <laughs> Apple, another big story. Uh, first league to go entirely direct to consumer, DTC, over the top, whatever you want to call it. Um, again, a fascinating story. You can go many different ways. Uh, I will tee you up in the way I think most people wanted this discussion framed, that MLS doesn't have the biggest audience, and they had a decision to make. Do we stick with some component of linear TV where probably they weren't going to get all that much money, or at least not what they got out of going exclusively with Apple, although there are some simulcasts? Uh, or do we take the bucks now? With an innovative company like Apple, and hope and pray down the line that you don't miss the eyeballs. Like you know, you can look at the NHL as an example when they left ESPN for NBC. Yes, NBC treated them well; they were on NBC SN. But what happened when they had the next option? They went right back to ESPN and the eyeballs. So you know, I'll tee it up like that, and I'll let you go wherever you want.
1: I think that's an interesting way to frame this. The, the idea of reach versus dollars is, is a debate that every league has in, in the U.S. right now. And, and there's only one league, the NFL, that gets both. And that's, uh, that's the well, National that's football, football League. You, you say every league. I think we need yeah. to break
0: that up, though. It's not every league. It, it's, there's tier one rights. And this is no offense to anything, you know, to any league, anybody, whatever. But there's tier one stuff like the NFL and the NBA. Agreed. And then there's, then there's you know, everybody else. And I don't yeah, know whether would even tier two, tier three, two whatever separate it
1: is. tiers the NFL and the NBA from, yeah, a, from yeah, well, a TV the NFL standpoint. is tier, I would right, argue, tier yeah. one, and
0: then we can make the NBA tier two, and then we'll see what else you know, where else everything slots out. But there's going to be money available on linear TV for the NFL and the NBA. I mean, that that we know, and there was uh, you know for the NHL as well, a great North American deal. So the question was, as you said, dollars versus reach.
1: Yeah. And and MLS, they're getting a lot of dollars here. The the, the top line number here is $2.5 billion. There may be more in that, Scott, depending on how the revenue sharing is between the league and new Apple Plus or Apple TV subscription signups. There's also a way to look at this number a little lower. MLS is responsible for production costs on the games. So I've seen numbers around $50 million a year for how much that might be. Maybe that's high, maybe that's low, who knows. But there's some added costs in here from that regard as well. But on the whole, this is a a, a big number, right? The, the the last MLS TV deal, which included U.S. soccer, was paying out a total of $90 million a year. Take out the, the U.S. soccer portion there, and we can call it $60 or $70 million a year. No matter what, this is a pretty big three, four times increase over what they were getting before, which is something that Don Garber talked a lot about uh, internally and, and and was a big priority. Now the question becomes... How much does the fact that the reach is suddenly a little bit smaller, how much does that change things? How how well are you going to do as MLS converting people to Apple subscribers so that they can watch these games? How much does the fact that every team no longer has local TV rights, that they can put on free to air, or they can do whatever they want to do with that. Now those are all part of this package as well. How much does teams not having local TV rights, how much does that change the way that they think about both viewership on TV and also as a, as a lead for for marketing and selling tickets? Because uh, those broadcasters often have that, have that role. There's a lot of questions, I think, that come after this. But from a top line standpoint, it's a pretty big number and it's in line with what MLS seemed to be thinking that they were going to get.
0: Can I go down memory lane for a minute? Little Stroll, you won't know this, but those of a certain age who grew up in the New York area, watching perhaps the best known team in the New York area, sorry, NYCFC, sorry, Red Bull. But in my youth, I would flick the channel. I'd actually have to get up and turn the dial on the TV to channel nine, WOR, where my good friends, the voice of Jim Carvellis and Seamus Mallon would greet me with, welcome to New York Cosmos Soccer. Right. Did, and then, you know, the clap, you know, that clap for Cosmos. I do soccer? not know the clap. I, do no. I, all right. Now I'm going to have to do it. It went like this. Oh boy. Cosmos. You really okay. didn't know that?
1: I, I know that. All right. I know that. Like, I mean, I would, yeah. I would go
0: to what was then <laughs> giant stadium to watch, you know, bogey and Quinalia and Seninho and Shep messing, uh, you know, to, to watch the Cosmos. So that was over the air, but this is what makes the job of commissioner. Very, very difficult. Yes, lucrative. So I don't, you know, um, this is no tears for Don Garber or Roger Goodell or Gary Bettman or Adam Silver. But what makes it so difficult is that your bosses, in essence, the owners, that is a very difficult constituency whereby Hmm. the wants and needs aren't always aligned. You have to understand that an MLS owner, who got in early and paid, what would, what, what's the proper number? 5
1: up? million? With, 5 what, million, I was going to say 5. Originally, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> An original owner who paid, well, let's just say 5 million bucks for his or her franchise is far different than a newbie who came in at 5, 550, 600, whatever plus million dollars. If I paid 600 million or 500 million for my franchise, I got to say, hey, I need to see some ROI. Take the money. Right, I need the money now. We gotta get we gotta get paid. If I paid far less, all right, I can say, all right, the the, the bump may not be exactly what we'd hoped for, but whatever. Let's take some time. We we've, we you know, soccer is a growth property, right? It's a growth business. We have the World Cup coming, and maybe there will be a, another renaissance after that. And what what surprised me here, I Evan, and again, we don't have all the details, you know. I, I would have thought we would have heard though if there was an out clause on this from the MLS side. But this is a 10-year deal. You are locked in for a very long time in an ecosystem of media that changes rapidly. Like, whatever the landscape is today may look far different in 2032.
1: And and I think that's a great point, Scott. And And to put a bow on that a little bit harder, MLS very often talks about the way in which Global soccer events in the U.S. help its own business, whether it's an MLS event or not. This 10-year stretch, Scott, covers the upcoming World Cup in Qatar, where the U.S. men's team has is in the tournament, first of all, which is nice, but has more, play more, England? more momentum behind it than, than it has in a very long time. It covers the 2026 Men's World Cup, which is going to be hosted largely, almost entirely in the U.S. North America. It covers the, the 28. Uh, LA Olympics, where both the US men's and women's teams are going to be playing. It also covers the 2031 Women's World Cup, which which could very well be played here in the US as well. That's all before the end of this TV deal. So yes, if there is a belief that that even successful Women's World Cups are, are good for the MLS business, there is a lot of things that are potentially going to go really well for MLS in the next decade that are all spanned under this deal. So, so a lot of that incremental growth they're not going to be able to capture under this partnership in the next 10 years.
0: I'm going to be really upset if after all my clapping and memory lane of Jim Carvelis and Seamus Mallon, if I don't get an email or text message or even a phone call from Dan Cordemanche to say, way to go. Like that's that, you know, way to you. I can't believe you remember that stuff. That would be great. And, you know, what did I have on my desk? I mean, what was my prized possession on my desk uh, so low those many years a signed Cosmos
1: ball I know Pele was on it right
0: Pele was on that ball yeah. yep yep so uh, Be- yeah. Beckenbauer? Kinalia, Pele, Bogicevic
1: okay. what's that? Deckenbauer yeah, bo- on that team or no?
0: Deckenbauer, De Kaiser yeah 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 so that, that was the prized possession which you know when, when, we, when we left our former employer I thought I had lost it like somebody took it because you know we left during pandemic and then when they boxed up my stuff and sent it it wasn't there and I was complaining that somebody stole my ball only to realize that it was in a different box already at home. (laughs) whoops <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> love oh, it. I love it. Sorry that. to whoever that had to do that. Uh all right. Tell me about Points Bet. Now let's close it up with the Susquehanna investment in Points Bet. When uh when we talk sports betting, I always call Mr. Novi Williams. He knows more than anybody else.
1: Some some pretty big news for Points Bet, the Australian-based operator that is focusing a lot of its business here in, in North America. Susquehanna, the, the the trading giant, has invested uh six sixty-five million dollars into Points Bet. They're buying 38. Uh, million new shares are they're, they're becoming essentially the largest they're becoming the largest shareholder in points bet. It's a big gamble Scott and, and I talked to Jeffrey Yass who's the who's the co-founder of Susquehanna about why he thought now and and, and points bet were, were the right time and the right company to make this announcement. And I think it's actually fairly interesting. He views the, the US sports betting industry right now and we've talked about it on this show is dominated by the companies that are willing to spend the most on advertising, the ones that are willing to give the most free bets, discounted bets and promos, the ones that maybe had the biggest name recognition. From a couple of years prior before sports betting was legal in a bunch of states. He thinks that in the long term, the thing that's going to win in the North American market is pricing. And Susquehanna has a lot of experience in Explain the that. For, for those who aren't familiar with,
0: well, for those who aren't familiar in the in the sports betting world, explain what you what you mean by, by so pricing. So by
1: pricing, I mean two things. One is just the, the basic odds. So the, the, the Jets can be a, a three-point favorite in. At two different sports books, but the but the the payout for each of those bets is not the same, right? So in some of those, you have to bet a dollar ten to win a dollar, and some of them you have to bet a dollar twenty to win a dollar, right? And that may seem like a small thing. And there are certainly betters out there who don't look at the price at all. But for some betters, particularly the serious ones and maybe the ones that are wagering the most money, uh, the, the, those pricing differences do matter. And the second thing that he he means when he says pricing is that overseas in more mature markets, live in play betting is the thing that drives the vast majority of the handle. And to do that well, you need to consistently have a price open. You can't take the price down when when, when a play happens just to reset it. And you also need to have models that are effective so that you're not getting burned by bettors that have better models. Um, And he thinks that that Susquehanna is going to be able to lend its own expertise to both those things. Live and play betting is the closest thing sports betting has to quant trading. And Susquehanna is really good at that also. So essentially what he said to me, is, this is the bet. The bet is that pricing is going to win. If it's a marketing battle, Susquehanna doesn't have anything to offer points bet. But if it is indeed a a fight over pricing in the long term, which he believes it is, he believes that that, that Susquehanna has a lot to offer points bet. So it's a good show of support for points bet. I think in Australia where where points bet trades, the stock jumped 18, 19 percent on Monday just on the back of this news. And we'll see how much, if Jeffrey's right. I, I'm not convinced, and I'd love to hear your thoughts here, Scott. Personally, I'm not convinced that that's the, that's the right way to think about the North American betting model. I know a lot of people, a lot of them casual bettors. Nobody seems to be price shopping in the way that I think he thinks uh, American bettors will be doing in the future.
0: But well, well, I do the, think well, there's it's an a reason why. There's a reason why in all these deals, you're know, you, you, you paired with Barstool, you're you paired with MGM, and it was the brand name. It's what, what are people comfortable with. But I mean, I don't. If if I was at a casino and I saw payouts were larger or the odds were better on a particular game, I would go there. Like maybe, maybe I'm like, you know, Sims, an educated consumer is their best customer. Maybe that's true of points bet in Susquehanna as well. I, I would think I want to go where I can get better pricing. That's where I would go. I'm just not sure, sort of, your average. And, and what's the difference between the whales and the pros versus sort of, you know, the soccer bet in 20 bucks or five bucks on the free throws into you know, the in-game play, Willie steal, Willie, you know, striker ball. Um, who do you, which market do you, do you need to win to, to get the advantage?
1: And, and one other thing about points bet, which puts them in a slightly different position than your DraftKings or your FanDuel's. If you were to ask Jason Robbins at DraftKings or ask the folks at FanDuel, hey, in a mature U.S. market, how big is your market share? They're going to give you a much larger number than what PointsBet will give you. I think PointsBet's yeah. stated goal right now is, is they want to have 10% of the U.S. market. And if that works out well for them, it's about double what they have right now. If that works out well for them, that's a great business. DraftKings and FanDuel are not going to be happy if this re- if, if the end result of the U.S. business is that they own 10% of the market. Yeah, they right? need 40. So, so, so those companies are spending a lot. Exactly, Scott. They, they need Those companies are spending a lot because they have a much higher target, a, a much higher return on the marketing investment that they're trying to get to. PointsBet is in this next tier of operators for whom they are competing with DraftKings and FanDuel for sure, but, but, but in the long term, they don't need to be anywhere nearly as big as that. And if they can get 10% of the market... That if they're pricing the best, Scott, and, and 10% of the market really cares about pricing, and they get that, that 10% of the market, that's a successful result for points bet. So it'll be really interesting in the next few years as more states come online. Generally, the, the thought process in the industry is that after three years, uh, uh, you should be profitable in that market, that that is kind of the, the point at which things settle down. So we're a long ways until... Anything close to what you might consider a mature market, even in states that are legal sports betting right now. But it's going to be fascinating to see how much consolidation there is, who's doing what in a couple of years, who's spending more, who's spending less, who's still in business, who acquired who. Um, and PointsBet just got a, a decent amount of capital and a high profile investor to back them.
0: Tell me and take us out on this. What what has happened to the uh, customer acquisition costs for the sports betting parlors?
1: They're still high, and it, it depends on the state. Some, some operators are, are, are scaling them back, and then it also depends on who the operator is. WinBet, for example, has made it very clear that they don't want to play the high cost of, of advertising and, and big promos game. points. Bet I, I would put in kind of that same category. DraftKings and FanDuel, from what I understand, are still doing more of the discounted betting, the matching your first $200 or $300 or $500 you put in uh, in, in, in certain states. They're doing more of that because there's a decent amount of churn, and that's the way they're acquiring customers right now. I mean, the the easiest way to talk about how this works, when New York went online, Caesars had by far the biggest customer acquisition costs. They, they were offering to match your first $3,000 you put in the uh, in the app. And if you look at the first couple months of betting in New York, Caesars was by far the most popular app. It was doing by far the most in handle. As Caesars scaled back that $3,000 to $1,000 and then even less for new customers, you saw that in the gross gaming numbers, th- their market share decreased. So right now, this is a, a game of who's willing to spend the most for customers. And if that continues long- Long term, I would argue this is not probably not a very healthy business, but it's just a big question of, of when companies decide they're not going to keep spending for this, when it settles, who is is the most effective at getting new customers and why are they getting them?
0: Speaking of getting new customers, of course we should have a sponsor for the podcast, but I think we could have a breakout sponsor for your soliloquies. Like that was good <laughs> right there. And I said, take us out on this, and man oh man, I mean access to a brain like this worth every penny of a Sportico subscription. The heck with all your co-workers. I'm giving you a standalone shout out. Right uh, I need there, a Novi producer
1: Williams. in my ear saying 30 seconds.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, take us out. Take us out. Take us out. Anyway, he is Evan Novi-Williams on the Twitter, Novi underscore Williams. I'm Scott Sashnik on Twitter at Sashnik. Our producer is Matt Whitehurst. Thank you very much, Matt. Our digital media editor is Core Veltman. She loves it when I remind you that the show can be found at Sporticast, which is the hub of what will soon become the Sportico Media Network.